My uh, favorite NBA player used to be uh, Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon and I, um, Houston Rockets. Uh, I always had an affection for big men for some reason, never really so much for the guards. And my debate from what, with my friends was always, who is better, David Robinson or Hakeem Olajuwon? And uh, I was always quoting the stats, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon was the MVP, two-time NBA champion, Olympic gold medal winner, all-time leader in block shots. And uh, more importantly, and I love this about him, he's, he was a really good human being, uh, a, a, a wonderful uh, example, unusual athlete. He intentionally endorsed uh, a, a specific shoe, a Spalding. Nobody really you know, knew much about Spalding until he endorsed it. And he, uh, he intentionally would not endorse a shoe by Nike, Adidas, or um, Reebok, the $200 shoes, because uh, he, he really believed that um, people who were uh, in poverty who bought a lot of these shoes did not need to be buying $200 shoes. He, he, he said this in his uh, autobiography, how can a poor working mother with three boys buy Nikes or Reeboks that cost $120? She can't. And so kids steal these shoes from stores and from other kids, and sometimes they even kill for them. Now in college, Olajuwon was very undisciplined. I remember him... Uh, he played for Houston, and uh, they were the team that were beaten by the Pac in 1983 on that amazing last-second shot. But he was very undisciplined. Uh, he yelled the refs a lot. He was really short-tempered. He got a lot of technical fouls. He was trash-talking other players. He would fight sometimes. Um, but then um, somewhere, I think it was around um, 1991, he became a very serious Muslim. He was from Nigeria, but he had never really taken his faith seriously. And he began to read the Quran every day. And in his autobiography, he says, at home, in the mosque, in airplanes, before games, after games, I was soaking up the faith and learning new meanings each time I turned a page. I didn't dabble in the faith. I gave myself over to it. Now, you can imagine as uh, someone who's not a Christian, um, when I heard um, this kind of verse uh, read, no one comes to the Father but through me, verse 6 there, Peter says, uh, there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved other than the name of Jesus in Acts 4. That was a big problem for me for many reasons. But for one thing, there was this man that I loved so much. There were others as well. Um, I was a fan of Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, other you know, great virtuous people. And I thought it was really arrogant, really exclusive for Christians to say, you know, no, those are not valid. And uh, a theologian named John Hick puts it this way. John Hick is probably the foremost uh, theologian who espouses this view called pluralism, um, which is basically that all roads lead, lead to God. And he says, in light of our accumulated knowledge of the other great world faiths, uh, Christian exclusivism has become unacceptable to all but a minority of dogmatic diehards. Minority of dogmatic diehards. Now, the problem with that statement is that's not true. That the vast majority of millions and hundreds of millions of Christians actually do believe in Christian exclusivism. These dogmatic diehards uh, do affirm that, that Christ is the only way be, simply because of these statements and many more in Scripture that would say, that would, that would suggest that. And so I think the question is the difficult question is why would these you know, putatively kind, humble, um, not arrogant people endorse this claim that seems to be so arrogant. 
why do Christians historically say that Jesus is the only way? And um, I think that the answer is simply because he is entirely unique. That he is so different. And he made such different claims from any other religious leader that it's, uh, that it's just simply impossible to say anything else given his uniqueness, given that he is so different, so outside the box, outside the norm. Um, you know, there was, there was no one else who suggested that they were actually God incarnate and got anyone to believe them except for him. And so I want to look at this passage because this is probably the most important passage by which someone would go and, and say, um, yes, Jesus is the only way, because he actually says it himself. So I want to look at this passage and his uniqueness, specifically the, um, the sufficiency uh, of Christ, that he's unique and that he's only, he is totally sufficient. And then secondly, he's unique because he is entirely gracious. He is uniquely sufficient and he's uniquely gracious, those two things. And as I say all this, again, I know I brought that story in from the beginning about Olajuwon because I know this is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to say this even now. But nevertheless, there it is. Uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I think that one reason people think that's arrogant is simply the way that Christians often talk about that. Or even the way they quote that verse can be very off-putting. It's almost like Christians relish the idea of putting down the other faith systems. As if the context of Jesus saying this were some kind of contest, like a boxing match or a cage match, and there's Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and Jesus. And he's like Muhammad Ali, and he says, I am the greatest. You know, I, there's none, no one else here can beat me. Like he's the champion of the world. But that's not the context at all. That's not, that's, if you look at why he says it, that's very important. Where it comes up in scripture, it's very important as to understanding the meaning. Uh, first of all, he's leaving them. He's very sorrowful. They should be comforting him right now, but he's comforting them. Uh, he tells them in the last chapter, where I am going, you cannot come. So not only is he leaving them, he's telling them that they can't go where he's going. And then he says, uh, one of you will betray me. This is all in chapter 13. All of you will abandon me. And Peter, you will deny me. So he's just told them all these really hard things. And so obviously in verse 1 it says, let not your heart be troubled. Because they're full of trouble. They're full of confusion and despair. The word trouble is a very strong word. Um, He says, let not your heart be troubled. So the context of this statement is that their, their hearts are very troubled. And Thomas is troubled. He says, we don't know where you're going. You know, verse 5 basically says, how can we know the way to God? We don't know where you're going. We're totally lost here. We're totally confused. And then Philip adds, uh, show us the Father. In other words, in verse 8, we thought we knew what God looked like, but now we're clueless. Given all these things you're telling us, we're totally confused. Their minds were just being scrambled by these things he was telling them. And so... That's when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And again, what he's not saying there is, you know, I see you pesky Muslims trying to sneak in to be with God, and uh, I don't want you to stay away from God. That's not what he's doing here. He's not pushing people away from God who otherwise would want to be with God. What he's saying is, Thomas, I am sufficient. 
I am all you need. I am the entire way to God. There's no other need besides me. And then he's saying to Philip, I am all you need to see God fully, entirely. Just look at me and that's all you need to see about God. There's there's nothing else that is needed. I love the way he puts it in verse 9. And the the commentary that I love the most by Dale Bruner. Uh, Dale Bruner says this is the theological high point in the book of John. Now, the book of John is a very theologically powerful book. So for a great commentary to say this is the theological high point, you should take that seriously. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I think the most telling thing about any person at any given moment is simply how they are conceiving of God, how they see God at any moment. Uh, is, the, is the most uh, effective or affective thing on their soul. It is what often determines your state of mind and your state of feeling. Such uh, questions as, is he real? Do I think he's real right now at this very moment? Do you think he's real? Do you think he's a person? Do you think that he knows you're here? Um, do you think that he cares? Do you think that he's in control? All these things, th- thousands of thoughts. We have this conception of God, and I think we always carry it with us every moment, whether it's atheological or theological. And what Jesus is saying is that there's no part of God that is unlike me. You're not going to see anything about God ever that is unlike me. Now, that doesn't mean there are things about God you'll never know. I believe even in heaven, we're not going to be able to fathom the depths of God. Obviously, there's an enormous amount of mystery. But what he's saying here is that... um, There is nothing in God that you will ever see that contradicts anything about my character. You're not going to find out at some point that God is a little bit meaner than I am. Or a little bit less just than I am. Or a little less kind to people than I am. All you're going to ever find out about God is going to be just more and more of things like me. And that's an incredible statement. It's incredibly comforting. When Thomas and Philip are so troubled... And when I am troubled, as is often the case, I I desperately need to think about God as Jesus. That's how I need to think about God. I mean, I had a panic attack this week because I was so troubled by things. I I felt like God was, uh, sometimes it was that he was detached and distant. And then other times it was he was too close and irritable. You know, I don't know which is worse, detached and distant or close and irritable. But it's those kind of things that... um, just make you feel uh, like um, falling apart, just quitting, just the way that you perceive God to be. And um, if I want to know my wife Margie's disposition to me, uh, one thing I can do is go and get the letters that she has written me and read them. And that will let me know beyond a shadow of a doubt how much she loves me. Um, or if I want to know about her character, if I need a reminder about <coughs> Her character, her compassion, her kindness, her wit, um, her intelligence. I will sometimes read um, some of the journals that she wrote when I first got to know her. Now, I say this because, you know, seeing pictures of her is wonderful. Um, I think that Jesus Storybook Bible is great. Uh, stained glass windows are great. All that's fine. But there's nothing like words. When you read words, um, it tells you so much about a person. Not just the story, but how it's told. Um, The way Jesus talks, just 
just this passage even. It's not just the words he's using. It's not the concepts. It's not like you could translate these concepts into bullet point, and then you got Jesus. It's the actual way he says them. It's his inflection, his tone. We can't obviously hear those things, but you can get a sense of them in the words. But we need to read the Gospels. You've got to read the Gospels. There's nothing like the Gospels. And you read about the way that he transformed that, the water into wine. And you think about the fact that he was extending a wedding party to make the party go on longer, to give joy to people. And you think that is what God is like. I, I might be thinking all these crazy things about God, like he's a killjoy and he's not very happy. But when I think about Jesus doing that, that's what God's like. Or you think about this fascinating conversation that he initiated with the Samaritan woman who was despised, who no Jewish male would ever talk to, who was the enemy, the absolute enemy. And Jesus comes to her and is almost flirtatious at some point in that conversation, is so kind uh, to her, is so warm. He's incredibly warm with her. He's definitely teasing her at parts. And promising her uh, forgiveness. Even as he kind of subtly calls her out on her sin, he immediately applies forgiveness. And you say, that's what God's like. He's, he's like that all the way through. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then there's the woman called in adultery where um, he protects her. He, he kneels down. He says, uh, you know, no one condemns you. And neither do I condemn you. And yet go and sin no more. And the holiness, the mercy... My point is, you read these stories, I could go on and on and on about the stories, but you read them and you say, that's what God is like. And all my fantasies about God, all my crazy thoughts about God, are to be obliterated in the blinding light of Christ. And in many ways, the great theologian Karl Barth, um, his whole theological project begins with this, that you erase all your thoughts about God, forget everything you know, and just start with Jesus. And that's, that's what God's like. Um, just think about the thoughts that you've had about God today or this week. Um, you know, things like, I bet he's mad that I did that. And he's probably punishing me right now for something I did last night. Or I hope that I just made him happy right there. Um, or he's probably frustrated with our country. I think about that a lot. He probably hates our society right now. I mean, don't you think about that? He is probably so sick and tired of American consumerism. But... If you read stories about Jesus, that's not the impression you would have at all. He wouldn't come here and just frown all the time and scowl and yell at people. I mean, he would love this country he, he, because he loves every country and he's a loving person. I knew a guy who could barely even think about the Christian concept of God because it made him so anxious. And so he would switch into the, uh, more of a Buddhist concept of God and then he would kind of calm down because the Christian idea of God was so anxiety produce, producing to him. Knew another person who thought so much of punishment when he thought of God that he just couldn't even go there. Because it was all about who goes to hell and why they go there. That's always what went through his mind. And again, erase the chalkboard and start over with Jesus and think about him. And that's the only reason he's saying this, that I am the truth. I am the true picture of God. And there's no other way to get to the Father, what the Father is like, except through me. I mean, what else could he say about that? I am sufficient. You know, let, let the Holy Spirit paint the picture. He's the Leonardo da Vinci. He's the spirit of truth in verse 16. I will give you a helper. Could also be a revealer. The spirit of truth. Spirit of truth paints the portrait of Jesus. Now, I'm not denying that 
Confucius said a lot of wise things. I, I remember reading the Tao Te Ching in high school. Uh, amazing wisdom there. Um, the uh, Buddha said many wise things. I haven't read the Quran, but I'm sure Hakim Olajuwon read that to great benefit. Um, we don't need to reject everything that all the other religions say. Now, atheists do, by the way. Atheists think that all the other religions are completely wrong about the things that matter most to them. But when I went from an atheist to a Christian, I became a lot more tolerant. And I started to realize, no, there is truth in all the religions. And yet, having said that, um, Jesus is sufficient. He's, he's all you need to see about God. Martin Luther said this, forget all speculation about God and hold on to the man, Jesus Christ. He is the only God we've got. That's point one, that he's unique because he's sufficient. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Get that tattooed on your arm. (laughs) He is totally sufficient. His revelation of God. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Number two, he's also unique because he's entirely gracious. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Verse three, I will come again and I will take you. He is entirely gracious. When someone comes to me, and this happens a lot, um, they'll say, um, how can Jesus be the only way to salvation? How can Jesus be the only way to salvation? Uh, one way to respond to that is say, uh, what do you mean by salvation? Because there are a lot of different competing narratives about what salvation is. So when you say, um, how can Jesus be the only way to salvation? What salvation are you talking about? Um, because there, again, there are many different views of what it means to be saved. And some are more gracious than others. And I'm just going to read a couple here. Um, this is from religionfacts.com. It's not a Christian source. It's a website that tries to be as neutral as it can on different views of God. And religionfacts.com says in, in Islam, the purpose of life is to live in a way that is pleasing to Allah so that one may gain paradise. At puberty, an account of each person's deeds is opened. This will be used at the day of judgment to determine his eternal fate. Paradise is the garden a place of physical and spiritual pleasure with lofty mansions, delicious food and drink, and virgin companions. Now, there's a, there's a lot of truth, actually, in what they say there. But it's not the same as the view that Christ had about salvation. And then uh, this is the Oxford Dictionary. It says that karma is the sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence. Because they believe in reincarnation. So you existed many, many times. Um, Karma is the sum of a person's actions in this and previous existences, viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. So imagine all your actions, good and bad, on a scale, and they're weighed. And if, if the scale goes up, if they're good, then you become something better. And so, you, like, I would become a doctor, for instance. <laughs> I'd become something. Or a minor deity. So that's if things go the right way. And then if they go the wrong way, then I might become a lawyer or a cat (laughs) or a mouse. And eventually, hopefully, they tilt this way and you get better and better and better. And then you achieve nirvana, which is enlightenment. And you have absolute freedom from all cares. And again, um, it makes sense in uh, in one way. I mean, the idea of punishing good, um, punishing bad, and rewarding good... There's, there's a lot of truth in that. It makes sense. But the salvation narrative of Jesus is different. It's very different. It's a different story. 
And in verse 6, um, he doesn't say no one comes to nirvana except through me. Or even no one comes into paradise except through me. That would be buying into those other salvation areas. What does he say there? What, is the, what does it mean to be saved? It means you get the Father. It's relational. It's not a state of mind. It's uh, not a place primarily. It is the Father. It is reunion. It's the prodigal son story where this son who has run away from his father and has hated his father and has lived a life of rebellion comes back home and the father has been waiting for him for years, watching for him to come. And when he sees him coming, he runs out and he embraces him. No one comes to father but through me. Again, not nirvana and not paradise, but the father. It's a, it's a very relational view of what it means to be saved. It's, it's intimate. It's eternal intimacy with the one that we lost. And I think that what every human soul longs for, I believe, fundamentally, is to be freed from this cosmic loneliness. I mean, loneliness is a huge problem. It's a huge part of all human existence. If you're single and you think married people are not lonely, it's not true. And if you're married and you think single people are not lonely, it's not true. Everyone's lonely. And we're lonely because we are not with the Father. Um, I, I think that you know, wanting to be in a garden paradise or be enlightened are also desires that humans have. But the great longing is to be in union with the Father God who created you. And that's the great promise here. To be released from the anxiety of being alone. And like an orphan with no parent. Uh, in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will bring you to the Father. I think we long for someone to take us back home. Uh, back to some kind of home that we never really had growing up. And yet we long for this idealized thing that we thought we had. And so it's that vision of home. And we want someone to take us home. And that's what he says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will um, go and prepare a place for you, verse 3. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you. When I went to college, I was intensely homesick for a while. It was almost nauseating. And when I left college, I felt intensely alone again because I didn't have all my friends who were living around the quad and dorms. Um, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. It's like the dorm room experience, the college experience, plus the home put together. In my father's house are many rooms. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus says um, there will be abundance and rest in his plentiful mansions. There will be abundance and rest. In verse 2, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And who wouldn't want to live in a big house with a lot of rooms, with all our friends, like a giant dorm? But in this case, the, the architecture is really cool, and the rooms are each unique, and you don't have a roommate or a bunk bed, and um, everything is kind of tailor-made to the individual that is there. So it's like Von Clarken, but the bathrooms are nice and they don't have spider webs in the corners. <laughs> There's a wraparound porch, you know, in the mansion, and there are rocking chairs and it's overlooking a meadow. Of course, I'm, I'm speculating here, but it's important to get your imagination to begin to think about what he's talking about. In my father's house are many rooms. And imagine in this amazing Von Clarken to the third power... There's this host, the, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's strolling around, he's laughing, and he's playing games. He's serving iced tea and snacks. He is 
hospitable. He is the host. It's his house. And he works with his children in the fields and uh, in the gardens. And he looks at insects with them and plants. And he's not distracted by his work. Um, he is not distracted by an iPhone. He, um, he is not like this father that I saw in Qdoba this week. It broke my heart. I saw a father in Qdoba. It doesn't seem like much, but he was with his little son. And I don't expect he was with his son all that often. But here he was with his little son at dinner. And uh, the dad's just, you know, scrolling. And the, the child's kind of trying to talk to him, get his attention. And the dad is just, like, completely obsessed with who knows what he was doing. But this father is not like your father or my father or any father, even the best father. Uh, he looks his children in the eyes and he says, I love you. And he hugs them. He gives them confidence. He doesn't touch them in inappropriate ways or hit them or anything like that. He asks questions. He listens like he's got all day long. Again, this is the father that um, Jesus knew about and taught his people about. The father. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times in um, 2014. It said, why the Cosby show still matters. Um, Why the, the Cosby show Some of you might not ever have seen the Cosby show, but um, let me read this quote from Jake Flanagan in this New York Times op-ed piece. No one expected the Cosby show to change the world, and yet TV Guide describes it as television's biggest hit of the 80s. It broke new ground in the media visibility of African Americans. It showcased another aspect of black American life, a black narrative that focused on education instead of poverty, Art instead of gang violence, and love instead of pathology. That show changed our country. Changed a lot of countries, probably. But more than anything about the Cosby show, it depicted a great father. Uh, The whole thing was about a father who was witty and was intelligent. He was well-educated. He was repentant. He was nurturing. Another quote from the article, he worked from home as an OBGYN. He was equally responsible for such traditionally female responsibilities as cooking and childcare. Now, as it turns out, we, we know that Bill Cosby was probably not the guy that he portrayed on the show. And, and yet that just underlines the importance of what he portrayed, of this father, this idealized father um, who takes away our orphan mentality of thinking about God wrongly that we so often have. And um, doubters like Thomas and Philip and uh, people who deny him like, like Peter, best friend, denied him. Faithless people like these disciples who refuse to trust God like we all do and cling to these uh, lies that were unloved, who betray him and who deny him and forsake him. Nevertheless, in the face of all that, all that chapter 13 stuff, Jesus says, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Not to nirvana or paradise exactly, but to the Father. And in the meantime, he says, I will give you a family meal that is a foretaste of that life, that forever home. And it's this, this table that he wants his people to celebrate as a small reminder of the fact that we do have, there's a mansion being prepared for us. Whatever that means, it's got many rooms in it. It's a wonderful place, but more importantly, it's a place where the Father is. And so on the night he's betrayed, on the night that he lost his father,